So, um, when Pastor Scott asked me to preach several weeks ago, um, I was like, well, where are you going to be? Where are you in your, your Revelation study? And he's like, oh, we're going to finish with that. And so I thought, all right, what next then? Where do we go? And he didn't give me a, a trajectory. He just said, you, you figure it out. I was like, all right, great. So, uh, as I thought about and reflect back on all these weeks we've spent in Revelation, there's two things that really stand out to me. And there's a lot of allegory and metaphor and, and just imagery and it's super confusing to figure out sometimes Uh, but there's a couple things that are really simple God hates sin when we see revelation and we see God's wrath the earth scorching um, reaction God takes to sin at the end of the day we are uh, we should be um reminded of how pervasive sin is in our world, how dangerous it is in our own lives and hearts, and we should run. So flee from sin. That was my first takeaway. And then we see what God does at the end to reward righteousness, to restore the earth, to create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And so I Come away from Revelation saying, flee from sin and run toward righteousness. And that's nothing new. That is throughout the scripture, uh, but it just stood out to me as I look back on that story. And so we're going to be in Deuteronomy 30 this morning. If you have your uh, Bible, it would be good uh, to turn there. And, you know, this upcoming week is July the 4th, and we're going to be celebrating independence and thinking about God's work in our our own lives and work in the life of our church, but we want to reflect on how God has worked in our nation. And um, so I was reading a story recently, let's do a podcast uh, with uh, Michael Medved and Dr. Al Mohler. And uh, Michael Medved has this book called God's Hand on America. And he was telling some of the stories from that book. And there was one that that kind of gave me a little piece of, of Alaska history that I didn't really know because I'm not from Alaska. And so it's good for me to get a, you know, when I was a kid, I had South Carolina history. So I can tell you about Francis Marion the Swamp Fox, but I don't know much about William Henry Seward. And so this, this story was good for me. So he says, the idea that America was able to purchase Alaska, that idea was based on, on the survival of William Henry Seward who by all rights absolutely should have died on the night of April 15, 1865, when Lincoln was shot. Because part of the conspiracy to kill Lincoln involved a very serious murder attempt on Seward, where Louis Payne broke into his house and stabbed him seven times. Now here's the amazing story. Nine days before that stabbing, Seward had a carriage accident. So because of that carriage accident, he had a metal plate covering his throat. It was tied to his throat with canvas. Payne, who was stabbing him, kept stabbing against that metal plate, not severing his jugular vein as he intended. One thing on which historians agree uh, is that without Secretary Seward, who was Secretary of the State of the United States, and his determination to add Russia, Russian America to what he viewed as the American Empire, without his survival, that doesn't happen. So that is what I like to call revisionist history. So um, the story's helpful. 
to know some history, but there is a little bit about this story, the idea that God wanted America, this is the way the author is intending this, God wanted America to have Alaska. So in God wanting America to have Alaska, God made William Henry Seward have a carriage accident nine days before this guy was going to come in and stab him so that in that carriage accident he would get this metal plate sewed on his throat so that when they stabbed him he wouldn't die so that he could be instrumental in allowing America to purchase Alaska. Now that's a stretch but the thing that I am confident about is that God does work in interesting ways and he is in the details and we should look back on all of history and we should look back on our lives and say God has prospered me he has allowed me to make it to this day and there are numerous events and scenarios in my life that I see the work and the hand the miraculous work of God to preserve me to protect me to provide for me and so we're going to see a story this morning in Deuteronomy about God's pr preservation about his protection um, about his purpose in the nation Israel and how he prospered them and I want you to be very careful when you read this story in Deuteronomy and when you read other stories like this that you don't make a grave theological error. An error I've seen many times in good, well-meaning, Bible-believing churches. America is not Israel. Is not when we speak of the people of God, we speak of the church of God. And so the people of God are those people who are called by his name, who pledge their allegiance to none other than Jesus Christ. And those people are spread all over the globe. Some of them love Jesus and they hate America. And guess what, friends? That is okay. Some of us love America and we love Jesus, but our allegiance to the cross of Christ must be first and foremost in our minds and so this story is great for us to think about how did God work through history to preserve us provide for us to lead us in a place where we're in such great prosperity today we live in a land of prosperity and the right response to prosperity is the gratitude toward God regardless of where you live and where you pledge your allegiance and so the author does get one one thing right pointing us to God as the author of all good things of every good and perfect gift and so we're going to see in this story in Deuteronomy 30 this morning the saving work of God which brings prosperity and then that pitfall of idolatry which brings destruction and then the fact that the saving work of God enables us to be obedient to him in the way that he asked us to and it allowed obedience obedience in the nation of Israel as well so if you have your Bibles Deuteronomy chapter 30 I'm going to read first section here and then we'll stop so chapter 30 verse 1 says and when all these things come upon you the blessing and the curse and so this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel and for some gravity here Moses is about to die he says a few verses after this he says I'm 120 year old 20 years old I can't get up or sit down I can't do anything anymore I'm about to leave this earth and I want to leave you with my parting words and so he says I've set blessing and curse before you and call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. 
and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you, with all your heart and with all your soul. And then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So Moses is being prophetic here. He's being He's doing some exhortation, encouraging them to honor the Lord, but he's also saying, there's going to come a time. You're going right now into the land to possess it, but there's going to come a time when God kicks you out of that land and he scatters you. And if you want to be brought back to this land, so if you want to go into this land, honor the Lord. I know you're not going to honor the Lord. You're going to get kicked out of this land, but if you want back in, then you have to once again honor the Lord. And so he's, he's, in a weird spot where he's saying, this hasn't happened yet, this will happen yet, this will happen, and when this happens, do this. It's kind of like us in the middle. We're stuck in the middle between here and Revelation. We see what Jesus has done, the work he's accomplished in history, the work he's accomplished in our lives and for us, but we have yet to claim the final promise of full restoration, and so we live in that tension of already but not yet. He says in verse four, if you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you might possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will take delight in prospering you. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, you keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So Moses tells the Israelites that God will prosper them. He says even in verse 16, uh, a few verses later, he says that if you walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, you shall live and multiply, and the Lord will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So God will bless you. There is blessing and cursing. This is throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This is the theme, the blessings of God, the blessings of obedience, and the curses of disobedience. And so he says the saving work of God brings prosperity. I'm intentional by saying that the saving work of God. Moses told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 9, he says, um, you're going to go into the Jordan. You're going to take over it. Nations greater, greater and mightier than yourselves. You're going to uh, dispossess them. And the Lord will go before you. But do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And then he says, verse 6, Know, therefore, that the Lord your God has not given you this good land because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. So the saving work is the work of God. And the result of that saving work is blessing and prosperity. One way we see it is in his protection. He protected Israel from their adversaries. He protected them even from his wrath. He says, I will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Um, he will make you prosperous 
He will care for you. And then later in verse 9, he says, He will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand, the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle. So he will not only give them protection from their enemies, but he will give them provision. He will give them provision in their lives. He will give them livelihood, their, their cattle, the things they would feed themselves with, and the fruit of their ground. In the fruit of their womb, he would give them provision of a future generation. And so this is prosperity. He also gives them purpose. I read that verse in, in Deuteronomy 9, how he says, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm doing this. It's not because of your righteousness that I am gonna wipe out these other people and allow you to enter this land. It's because of my wrath on their sin. And it's because of my purpose for you. And we see that purpose in Exodus 19. He says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, again, protection, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There we see blessing or provision or prosperity and purpose linked. He says, all the earth is mine, but you, because all, all the earth is mine, therefore I will choose you as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so he called the people Israel out, called unto himself, did a great work in them so that the nations might know that he is God. And so when he calls you and I out of our sin, out of our darkness, and into his light, he does that not just for our good, but for his greater glory. His work in our lives is for his glory that others might see what he does. We should look at our prosperity and align it with God's purpose. Because when I say prosperity, I speak this morning to a people who are the Israelites is, this is a promised prosperity. This is something that will come for them at a later time. But I speak this morning to a people who are immensely prosperous. You are ridiculously rich. You might say, Jeff, if you only saw my bank account, you would know how rich I am not. But if you only saw yourselves in the perspective of world economics, the global economy and where you stand and the opportunities that are available to you, the resources that are around you, the selection you simply have, the, the number of flavors of cereal in the grocery store is a testimony to our ridiculous level of prosperity. Um, and so we are a people that are already prosperous. And so what should our response be? It should be gratitude. We should be gracious. We should look and see this is God's work. This is God's hand. He has provided to me everything I have. It's as simple as sitting down before a meal and praying and thanking God for the food, not just because it's some ritual that you go through, but because that's a reminder that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. Every good gift. So every morsel of bread or every steak and potato feast that you have should be a reminder that God provides for all our needs, our lives, our livelihood, and even our future. 
so we are prosperous. It should cause gratitude in us. Also, it should cause us to be generous and gracious people. But you know, you might not always feel prosperous. God says to them, if you obey the Lord, you follow him with all your heart, with all your soul, you love the Lord, you obey his voice, if you obey him, you keep his commandments and his statutes. If you hold fast to him, you love him, you walk in his ways and keep in his commandments, then the Lord will bless you. Is what he says. There will be blessing for being faithful to the Lord. Sometimes our faithfulness to the Lord is not blessed. It is not rewarded. Sometimes we choose the path of righteousness and it doesn't lead in temporary or instant gratification so for example yesterday I was on the Kasilov with a friend of mine Nate who is a fish guide and um, I was a guest on his boat with another friend of mine and then we had two uh, tourists here from out of state and it was an older couple and they weren't very mobile and they had never fished before and uh, it was a lot of work for Nate to kind of take care of them and it was you know Thomas and I we pitched in to kind of help them in the boat and out of the boat and this lady was she just struggled to get in and out of the boat she was elderly and just not able to move very easily and she was really concerned that she's going to fall in the current and standing on the in the rocks and you know so she would only trudge out about this far you know ankle deep into the water and uh, we thought man if she gets a fish on the line how is she going to get that thing out of the water and onto the bank like how's it going to work out for her without falling and so we were kind and gracious and helped her in and out of the boat several times. And uh, it was an eight-hour journey on the water. And uh, hour seven, we still had no fish. And this couple who probably spent good money to come up here, and fishing was the only, the only thing they were doing, but that was one of the things. She told us that she had bought this really huge, massive cooler to take back all the fish they were get, gonna get in this one fishing trip. And uh, so, I mean, anyways context for you and so hour seven we got no fish we're about to close up shop and go home and I'm just like man I really wish this lady would get a fish because it's been a lot of work for her to be out here and she put a lot of thought and a lot of expectation that she's got high expectations and we're not delivering at all and I feel bad for my buddy Nate I want to help him you know he's not going to get a tip <laughs> maybe he will I don't know but she got no fish and so hour seven, she gets a fish on the line. And I'm like, whoa! I mean, I yelled, you know. Everybody from Kasilov to Homer could hear me, you know. And uh, so, but then, then I'm like, oh, no, yeah, she has a fish. But how is she going to get it? I forgot about that. And so Nathan was super skilled with the net. And so he got out there, you know, this deep and <laughs> scooped her fish up because she couldn't really even reel it in. And so anyways, got her on the bank. And uh, he was like, yeah, you know, come over and, you know, you can take a picture with it and hold it up and, and that's good. We'll get you some photos with it, but we're not going to be able to keep it. And she was like, what? And well, it was a foul hook. The hook was in the fish's tail. So, um, yeah, without him with the net, she probably would have never got it in based on where the hook was, but nevertheless. And so he's like, this is illegal, you know, for us to keep this fish. And so we're going to have to, it was a nice, big, you know, good size, good size salmon, but we had to send it back. And so she was happy that she got a picture. She's like, it's really slimy and dirty holding it. And well, it's a fish. <laughs> it's what they're like. But uh, anyway, so 
we let her fish go, and I was, I was bummed for, for her, bummed for Nathan, and uh, I was like, man, that's, that's a tough one, and he was like, yeah, he said, um, he's only been doing this a couple summers, he said, last summer when I was training him with another company, not the one he works with now, he said all the other guys, they would have kept that, he said, they, they would say, you know, no one's going to see that, fishing game, they're not over there, they don't, they, they don't see what you're doing, no one's going to care, just keep that one, just let her keep it, not a big deal, you know, you can do that, no one's going to know where the hook was, you know, you're going to fillet that fish and throw it away, no one's going to see it, so it's fine, you can keep that, and he was like, I can't do that, he's like, I know what the law is, I know what the rule is, I have to have my integrity, and I, I have to let it go, so even though it means this lady's disappointed, even though it means that he's probably going to get a little tip, not a big tip, and even though it means that he goes, home and, and uh, you know, maybe has a not so extremely satisfied customer, he knows the right thing to do is to send that fish back. He honored the Lord. He kept his command. He was ethical. He did the right thing. He wasn't blessed because it's not always a temporal, material, instant blessing. But that is the promise of idolatry that is the 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 hook that idolatry waves before us and that's why Moses goes there next we'll see in um, verse 15 he says see I've set before you today life and good death and evil if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God walking in his ways keeping his commandments then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you verse 17 but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So the saving work of God brings prosperity. We may see it in our day. We may see it on that great day. But the pitfall of idolatry brings destruction. Verse 17 gives us this pattern of how it works out. It says, if your heart turns away, that's the first step, you will not hear, so your heart turns, your heart becomes callous. Your ears are shut you will not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods so your worship is distorted it is deflected in another direction and serve them you are enslaved to idols so it starts with a heart that becomes callous it ends with ears that are shut off to even hear the word of god it results in worship that is distorted displaced and it ends in enslavement to sin now, you might say, that's not a danger for me. That's not something I'm worried about. Uh, I'm not going to worship idols. There are no idols. I'm not building a little statue. But you're building something. Are you building position? Are you building your place and prominence? Is that where you put your hope and you fix your mind? Are you building recognition among others? Are you building wealth? You put your focus all the way there. Are you idolizing the culture and what the culture is telling you to do and what the culture is declaring is right and wrong? 
We have a show, it's been on for years, American Idol. It's okay that that's what it's called. It's not a bad show, but it is telling that we idolize celebrities in our culture, that we raise them to a level of worship. Is it politics? We certainly idolize politicians and presidents and leaders. We raise them to a level of near worship. We have rallies and scream and yell and bow before them almost. What is the thing that has become an idol in your life that draws you away from God? Cotton Mather, an old preacher um, in the early colonial days of America, said, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. So he says that prosperity is a result of honoring God. There are people that are prosperous that don't necessarily always honor the Lord. So I'm going to argue with them a bit on that. But he is right to say the daughter devoured the mother, meaning prosperity overtook the religion. When prosperity becomes our God, it is our religion. And we can see churches in America, they have television shows on Sunday morning. They have a whole network devoted to this idea of the prosperity gospel, that if you love God, if you're faithful to him, you will get rich. Give me some of your money. I will give a little bit back to you. God will, not me. God will. And you'll be just like me and have a private helicopter that you can fly around the country in. Like that is the theology of a group of people that call themselves Christians. But that is idolatry. Their focus is in being obedient to the Lord because they believe it will lead them to material wealth. And so their obedience is only as far as it makes them wealthy and no further. Doing the right thing, if it doesn't lead to some instant gratification or material comfort, is not the right thing to do based on that theology. And then Thomas Watson, another old Puritan, um, says it in a way that really hits me where I live. He says, foremost is the tendency of money. And you can insert whatever your thing is for money, but his is money here. Foremost is the tendency of money to replace God as the object of ultimate devotion. Worldly goods are veils set between God and us. They stay our sight in them that it cannot pierce to God. How ready is man to terminate his happiness in externals? So he says, worldly goods, things that we have and hold on to today are like a veil between God and us. So God is the giver of all good things. But when we take the things we, he gives us and we hold them up right here in front of our faces and fix our eyes on them, we do not see the God is, that is behind them giving them. We only see the worldly goods. And so the things that cause us to be blind to the Lord, that we can only look at them and devote and distract our focus from him are ungodly things. They do not help. It says they stay our sight that it cannot pierce to God because man is always ready to terminate his happiness. That means to place, to, the, to tell us the end of happiness is in externals. So if we always find our happiness in externals, 
If you've ever walked through your neighborhood at night and said, man, that house right there is a lot nicer than mine. Man, that car that guy has is a lot nicer than mine. Wow, he's got a really big boat and a four-wheeler and a snow machine and blah, 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 and this, that, or the other. Or wow, they have X, Y, Z thing. And you're always focused on what everyone has. If you're looking at your face tube and you're always worried about you know everyone else's accomplishments and where they live now and what they've done none of them are telling you like the fight they had with their their husband or the kids or uh, the struggle they're in at their job because they just have so overextended themselves to debt that they have to work at a place that they hate doing a thing that they hate to do because they have to have xyz funds to cover the things they've committed to because the focus is on these external things. I think our remedy for idolatry is contentment and gratitude. So I think about my grandmother. Um, Someone that could say, I've honored the Lord, I'm following the Lord, but I don't have everything I need to have, so I'm gonna abandon the Lord. That's not what she did. At 19 years old, my grandmother had my dad, and at 12 years old, my dad lost his father. So that means at 31, my grandmother was a widow. At 31, she had three children. As a 31-year-old widow, she also had my uncle, an infant, in her house. So she has three kids, one of them's an infant, and she's widowed. So she has to move from Atlanta, Georgia, where they were living, where her husband's working, and uh, move in with my great-grandmother in a little town upstate South Carolina. And um, that's the house she died in, her mom's house. When she was 89 years old, she died. As a kid, I spent every Sunday at her house after church, many Saturdays hanging out with her, visiting nursing homes. She was serving other widowed ladies that were older than her and needed assistance and she would take me with her on Saturdays and uh, you know I just heard a lot of stories from her about her life and things that she'd done but the thing I never heard from her was a complaint I can't think of one single day that I spent with my grandmother where I heard her complain about her status in life and friends, I can't think of one single day where my kids haven't heard me complain. They're, she had more to complain about than many other people I know that are well off and amazingly blessed and have never had a rough day on this earth that gripe and moan all the time. And she was not a person to complain. And she was a person that was extremely gracious as well. Gracious to the extent that when I was a little kid, my brother and I would fight and get in all kinds of trouble and my dad would whoop our tails. That's the way we said it then. And, uh, or jerk a knot in your hide, that's another way to say it. <laughs> and one day, um, you know, my dad's name is Wayne. His full name's Jonathan Wayne. And so one day my brother and I are getting into something and we're at my grandmother's house and my dad starts yelling at us and she says, John Wayne! So she said, John Wayne, he's in trouble, not me. John Wayne, you leave them boys alone. They're not hurting a thing. And so she 
we, we didn't get away with nonsense. I remember eating a bar of soap and spitting my words out into the sink at her house one time. Uh, but uh, she was extremely gracious and extremely kind. And so I think that's a, that's a pathway away from idolatry is to be extremely grateful for the things that we have, to be content in our state, um, and to be gracious with others. So the saving work of God brings prosperity many times. The pitfall of idolatry brings destruction every time. And the saving work of God enables obedience. Let's look at uh, verse 11 here. It says, for this commandment that I command you today, what's that commandment? The commandment is to obey the voice of the God, keep his commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. So he says, this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Romans 10, Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Paul quoted Deuteronomy because he knew that the faith which both Deuteronomy and Romans desire is obedient faith which stems from a heart changed by God. If our heart is not changed by God, we will run toward idols. We will put up things in place of our worship of him. If our heart is not changed by God, we can't obey his rules, keep his commandments, love him with all our heart. Our heart is distorted. It is tainted by sin. Without the saving work of God, as Deuteronomy calls it, God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all your heart. Without God changing our heart, rendering us a new heart, we cannot obey him. But God does that work for us. Salvation and obedience both require a work of God. We cannot save ourselves. That's what idolatry says, that you can build up a, a system, a path, a pattern, a pro process by which you save yourself, in which you declare yourself to be right. We can't save ourselves. We can't be fully obedient. So salvation and obedience both require an act of God, and salvation and obedience are both gifts of God. So when God says he'll bless us, he will give us life, the life he means is the life in Jesus. 1 John says it in a great way. 1 John 5, he says that he who has the Son has life. And who does not have the Son does not have life. This is the testimony, 1 John 5, 11, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So how do we do that? Love the Lord your God, obey his voice, hold fast to him. In a culture that does not obey his voice, that does not hold fast to him, we must run away from 
things that are idols that, um, as Thomas Watson said, get in the way that distort, that become veils to us, that distort our view of God, that keep us from seeing God, keep us from following him. We must flee from those things, remove them. And we must run to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has done it for us. You know, we believe in the saving work of Jesus in our life as something that we could not do. So that which is ours, sin, becomes his. Jesus takes on our sin. And that which is his righteousness becomes ours. Fancy word for that is the imputation of God's righteousness. God looks on Christ and declares us righteous. God looks on our sin and he places it on Jesus. And so through that process, through the Holy Spirit's work in our life to lead us to him, our heart is changed. Our desires are changed so that we might love the Lord your God with all our hearts. We might obey his voice and we might hold fast to him. And it's an everyday journey. It's not a one-time sign the card, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, and you're done. It is a daily battle. Idols will be thrown in your pathway things will come your way to distract you on a regular basis you always have to be on the journey so um last week i did a dumb thing so on saturday i hiked up skyline trail that's not a dumb thing it's a good thing because i knew that on wednesday there was a group going to be in town over the college that uh was looking for some outdoor activities after they finished their work day and I'd promised to take them on a hike and so I was going to take them on Skyline Trail. I hadn't been there in a year and a half. I wanted to make sure I knew the way before I led a group of 15 people from Minnesota up the hill. And so if you're going to do it on Wednesday, you should just do it on Wednesday. Not like on Saturday and then on Wednesday because on Saturday, it's no fun, okay? I mean, it's a great experience, but it's no fun. The first hour and a half or two hours, however long it takes you, you're just walking upstairs, upstairs, upstairs in the dirt and up the stairs and you're just going up and up. There's no like go up and walk a while and then go up. And walk. No, it's just up, 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 up. It's not fun. And so, but when you get to the top, it's great. But then Sunday morning, my legs were kind of sore. On Wednesday, my legs were kind of stiff. On Tuesday, I could not stand up. On Wednesday... I'm going up the mountain again with a group. So I took my daughter, Ellery, with me, and uh, her legs were fresh, and she's also 11. I'm about to be 45. So she's a little mountain goat. And so um, I was no longer, and I thought, well, I'm going Wednesday, this group, there are like 15 people. Surely there's someone that's really slow in there or a couple of them, and I can just hang out in the middle and I'll be fine. My daughter, that was not her perspective. She wanted to win. She thought it was a race, right? And so she just, <laughs> running the whole way and uh so i'm just like keep on climbing keep on climbing keep on, keep on going but when you get to the top and you turn and look back and on a clear day you can see the old derricks all the way out in the cook inlet from an hour drive away from here you're that high up it's really clear it's really cool it's a great view it's a tremendous view 
You know, the fire happened 2018 or 19, whatever, and uh, it cleared most of that forest that you would normally hike through as you go up the trail. And so because of that fire, as you're going up, every now and then you can turn around and look back and you can see the view along the way. And that's really encouraging. Because, oh man, it looks really nice. But you can also see the mountain that you have to go up and that's discouraging. But as you tread along that journey, you see those little glimpses along the way or what it's gonna look like. And then you get to the top and you see that fantastic view and you're thankful, hopefully, to what God has done in his creation and the earth that we live in and how marvelous and amazing it is that he could create this. Um, and then because it's all down here from there, you just run down the hill. If your knees will withstand it, you just run, you know? You get to the bottom, your legs are like jello, can't walk, but it is a great time. And so Jesus gives us those glimpses along the way. If you're having one of those days where you're like, I'm doing the right thing and there is no eternal reward, I can be assured that there are gonna come days where you see a glimpse of his reward. And when we read story like revelation and we see the new heavens and the new earth we can see where we're going always we can see it's a journey up the hill but we know where the trail terminates um and we're not like walking through life climbing that mountain based on my strength um we're we're being obedient to the lord we're serving him we're loving him with all our heart because jesus has already done it and accomplished it and has finished it and has won the race and it's not up to us it's not based on our ability or our stamina or our strength it's based on him and what he's done and so we just have to hook our carabiner to his pack and let him drag us up the hill and don't get distracted by the things that are in the way we're just sing a song right here that talks about jesus our redeemer and the work that he has done going before us and uh it's great to think about at the end of that song that when the race is complete our lips shall repeat that it's yet not i but through christ in me and so we if we can say at the end of the day that it's not me that won the race then we should be able to say today it's not i that has to win the race and so that leads us to gratitude that leads us to graciousness, that leads us to godly contentment because we know that he wins the battle for us. It is not up to us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your word that is a treasure to us, Father. We thank you that it encourages us, but also that it convicts us of our sin. Father, I pray that, that this morning as we've read this encouragement from Moses, this direct sermon from him in Deuteronomy, that we are encouraged to fix our eyes on you, to turn our eyes away from things that would lead us astray, to flee sin and pursue righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.